Welcome to the Leadership in the Environment podcast. This is Joshua Spodak. I'm here with Dan McPherson. Dan, how are you doing? I am fantastic once again. And if I haven't lost track, this is our third, com- our third conversation on race. And then we had two episodes of yours. A lot of conversations. Yeah, a lot of conversations. Quite a series of fun and exploration. I'm looking forward to digging in a little further today. Yeah, what to dig in? Well, so today, you know, we've talked so much about different aspects of race, and it's been a fascinating conversation to really look at it and through your lens and to look back through your history. I know that you and I have both thought and talked and processed a lot about our conversations and about race in general between last time and now. And I know you took some notes and have, have some thoughts. What really popped up for you? What are the, what are the thoughts that came to the front? There are two things that come to mind, two different directions that come to mind when you put it that way. One is the thoughts about race and the other is why I'm doing it. Like the, one is about the content and the other is more like at a meta level. Well, let's now, start with the meta level. Yeah. I was going to say the, on the, at the meta level is why am I talking about this stuff? Because in my experience, white people talking about race often get fired and misunderstood or canceled, things like that. It's much easier not to talk about these things. At first, I thought it was because everyone else was talking about it. And I felt like it's annoying not to be able to talk about something. And then I thought a lot of my experiences seem to be different than most white men's about the years I spent as a racial minority and the muggings and all things like that, that, and, and then not experiencing the suburban lifestyle. I'm not sure there's some lifestyle that doesn't ring true to me. I certainly thought that I had something to share that was valuable to people. But even that, what precipitated it was all of that would come secondary to working on sustainability in the environment, which is, this is my act in service of others. I mean, I don't have to do that, right? I, I'm just about 50 years old. I could probably keep myself pretty safe and healthy, even if the world starts falling apart, because I got the resources. I can do that. I don't have kids. Right. I don't have, so if someone says, what about the children? Well, I got nieces and nephews, but they're not my direct kids. This is something that drives me in service of others in the way that, you know, when I meet people in the military, the way that they talk about what they do or people in the ministry, the way that they talk about what they do. How is this conversation in service of others? Okay. Right? Yeah. I love the path you followed because what you, what you just talked about is your two reasons were what we hit upon in, in our first conversation and then what we hit upon in our second conversation. So this feels like a very natural outflow of that. If all of those things, if all of that messed up the environmental work, I would put all that to the side and say, that's not in service. That's not, however important that is to me as an individual, it's not that important to what's my big passion, my mission. Right. Here's where it comes in is that especially recently, the, well, I'll put it in the palatable ways is that when I discovered, uh, what's the context? Okay. When I'm picking up other people's garbage, mm-hmm. litter off the ground, right? I'm not thinking, some people will say, oh, you're getting your hands dirty or why are you doing work that you don't have to do? But I'm thinking of, especially after seeing a movie like The Story of Plastic, I'm thinking of of people drowning in plastic in the Philippines and Indonesia and India and all over the world as a result of a system that I'm helped driving. So in my heart, I am connecting with them, the people who could be hurt otherwise. And most of, for the past several years, people would say, Josh, why are you so extreme? Why are you doing this? Why are you not flying? You don't get to see the Eiffel Tower, but everyone else is flying anyway. All you're doing is missing out. Just go take a vacation, fly somewhere, get some takeout. 
Everyone else gets takeout. If you do, it's no big deal. But I'm not thinking about me. I'm thinking about the people in what we, in the third world or the, the, um, the global south, however people put it, the people who are helpless to be affected, to be hurt by acts of mine. And I never really had a, a, a meaningful answer to that until I discovered William Wilberforce, Thomas Clarkson, John Newton, Granville Sharp, these people who were the British abolitionists of the late 1700s, early 1800s in England. They looked across the ocean, as I did, to people who were suffering, as I did, and people around them who were saying, just get with the program, man, have a good time. Because Liverpool, London, Bristol, at that time, were the, that's of the biggest empire the world had ever seen. These were the centers of commerce of one of the most profitable trades, just the slave trade, as well as the trades that it enabled, sugar, molasses, rum, things like that. Right. People around them were like, get with the program, man, have a good time. You're just losing out. You're not eating sugar. That doesn't help. It doesn't affect anyone but you. And if we don't do it, France will. If I talk about abolition, talk about slavery, then race comes up. These were people who in history took on the greatest industries and succeeded. I finally felt someone that I was like, yes, that's how I feel. And they were successful and no one could have anticipated that. And I realized if I want to talk about that, and this is the first time I'm talking about it in, an, in a recording that I'll probably post, then I must have a vocabulary to talk about these issues with the fluency, with, to, because it's very easy to say the wrong thing, even not, not, not the wrong thing. It's easy to say something that one could misinterpret. And I don't want that to happen because I think this is too great a resource to tap into this historical precedent of people that many people look up to tremendously. I didn't know about William Wilberforce until a couple of months ago. But when I talked to a friend of mine who's evangelical, he's like, this is one of the major figures in my world. I can't hold myself back from talking about someone who's become one of my great role models. So you're, look so you're looking at the parallels. I'm looking at the parallels. I'm, looking, I'm drawing inspiration. And, getting, and gaining a common language. Yeah, and also hopefully tapping into communities you know, so I've read all these biographies of, of Wilberforce and watched a whole bunch of documentaries and, and movies and learning about him and Clarkson and that movement and realizing that I don't have to reinvent the wheel. Not to connect on that would be, I, I think that's, what, that's why we learn about the past, about situations similar to what we have. That got me talking about race. It was kind of thrust upon me because to me it was a role model issue and a historical precedent issue but I realized that a lot of people are going to see me talking about race or talking about something that race is very tied into, and that's going to come up. I have my particular history that seems to be different than most people expect. I want that to come out, but then I also want to understand what I'm missing. What, what perspectives do, do I not get? What perspectives are people going to expect? And it sounds a little bit too like how you've approached the environment, at least in, from the context of some of our conversations where you, you have a different approach than many others, you have maybe a different background or, or coming to it than many others. And so you seem to be approaching it with that curiosity, that, that need or willingness or desire to share what you've encountered, but also to ask a lot of questions and find out what's, what's really going on and to dig into how those interlink. Is that accurate? Well, certainly what I don't know is much greater than what I do know. It's possible that I'm going down, I'm following something that will lead to a dead end, but I feel like it's more like I'm pulling at the thread and the whole sweater is going to come un unraveled. The whole sweater being 
a system where we believe that what happens over there isn't connected to what we're doing over here. Mm-hmm. And we can safely sleep at night feeling like, I don't know, someone else should do take care of that. And the new sweater that we'd, we'd re-knit from that yarn would be enjoying acting in stewardship, you know, taking responsibility for how our behavior affects others. Even if what looks like now would be extra work or deprivation or sacrifice or chore or burden or in the way we look at it now, it might be like we'd sacrifice GDP growth right. or comfort and convenience in favor of what, and we'd give that up. But from my perspective, it would be, it's more like, I, I'm sure I've used this analogy before, but back before when I used to go out partying with friends and we'd go out and hang out with the DJs and stuff. And if you asked any of my friends, would you rather party and go out and hang out behind the DJ booth and be with the celebrities? Would you rather do that or would you rather get poop on your hands? <laughs> Everyone would be like, that's ridiculous. I'm the DJs. But then they became parents and they would, they're at home changing diapers and getting poop on their hands. And they'd much rather do that than go out and party acting in service of others, especially when someone is helpless to defend themselves against behavior that would hurt them. And instead helping them is one of the deepest, most gratifying and enjoyable senses of reward that I think humans have available to us. Well, one of the things too, that that comes through in that example, as odd as it may be, (laughs) is that context matters. So many of us have context for the choice that we're currently making, but we don't necessarily have a context for the choice that we're that that we're not making that can be a much better path. And what I see you as trying to do is to provide context that then doesn't force people to make a different decision, but inspires people to consider things differently and therefore through that inspiration, make different choices and through those different choices to change and improve the environment. I see that as your path with the environment. And I'm curious to talk about how that works, assuming that my assessment is accurate there to talk about how does that work from a race perspective? Yeah. The way I would put it, I'm going to put, I think I'm going to say what you just said in my terminology. Okay. Is that what's, is changing the I would say it's leadership versus management. I think a lot of people out there are saying their approach to acting, on sustain, acting more sustainably is here's what we need to do within 10 years. The only way you can do it is here's the timeline. So here's, you should do this, you should do this, you should do this. It's telling people what to do. It's working within the system. What I'm talking about is, I think you, the words you use is context, framework, mm-hmm. the beliefs, the goals, the values, the images, the systems, that's what I want to work on. I think the main story people have about the environment is, oh man, these scientists figured this thing out, this stuff out a while ago. And now they're saying everything I'm doing is hurting people. And I got to give up. I got to, I can't eat any more steak. I got to eat crickets instead. And I can't do this and I can't do that. And it's all horrible, but I have to, Ugh. then someone will say, well, go without straws for a week because they figure, well, they'll get the experience of not going, of going without straws and they'll, that experience will lead to others. And you know, what's the smallest little thing that I can sneak in there. Once they experience it, they'll like it and they'll change. And then they go without straws for a week. In that week, someone, they go to a restaurant and the waiter brings out something with straws. And they're like, oh, I'm avoiding straws. Can you take that back? And the waiter says, well, if I take it back, I'm just going to throw it out. You might as well keep it because it's, you know, it's going to be thrown out no matter what. And they're like, oh, fine, whatever. Either they send it back and the waiter's like, oh, or they take it and they're like, oh. And then the week ends and the world is unchanged, except that it was a problem for them. And it reinforces that it's a lot of work that goes nowhere. Even the littlest thing, I'm sorry, is still a problem for them. It's still a burden. It makes no difference in the world. So might as well not do anything because if all it does is make my life worse for no benefit, 
this is a big pain in the butt. Leadership is about changing beliefs and goals and structures so that on the podcast, I ask people, what do you care about? And then give them a chance to act on what they care about. I lose the direction. I don't know what they're going to come up with, but I gain that they like it. Whether it has an effect or not, that's measurable divided by 7.8 billion, probably not. They still like it and they want to do more. Going back, I mean, I want to connect this to Wilberforce and, and that crew. Right. It was also very clear that no one at that time could do anything. From their perspective, I could quote, I'm half inclined to get out this book and, and quote about how at that time in the late 1700s in England, not slavery was abnormal. I'm t- globally and historically, that was the unusual thing. People, there's serfdom all over the place. There was bondage everywhere. Anything else was like really weird. If you were to suggest ending the slave trade, then I think the quote from the book was something like nine out of 10 people would laugh at you and think it was crazy. And of the remaining 10%, like a few, like they would think it was impossible and not worth doing anyway. Very similar to what people say now. Right. I want to change. How how does that discussion, I, I, I get how they're parallel. I get how they're related in that sense. How does having that discussion now change or, or fit into the bigger picture though. Because now it's people saying, I'm going to do today for our issue of today, what they did for that issue of that day. And they were great historical figures who changed the world. Some point to them as the most influential people in history. Or the so it's more reformers. of an inspirational springboard than anything else? Well, to see that it's possible. And then once you get into it, you realize that acting in stewardship of others is a tremendous thing. Okay. So but if you're bogged agree, down, if you're agree. Bogged down now, saying, Josh doesn't get this because he doesn't really understand his ancestry never faced this and he's, he's not at risk himself for, he hasn't fa- had to face these things growing up and so forth. Then the conversation never gets started. It's all about me. It's all about what I'm missing, what I don't get. Right. I don't, so I, I don't so get, it's I, establishing it's the credibility get. to have the bigger, to have the bigger conversation in many ways or the validity there, the, it's, it's about almost getting to a spot where you feel like you're allowed to have the larger conversation and make the parallels. Is that accurate? Yeah, I, I might say a little more to develop my humility, which is like underdeveloped. <laughs> and also my vulnerability. I don't pretend to have all the answers. Right. But I do believe that we today have the opportunity to do for our world what they did in their world. They did it. No one would have thought that they could do it. And they did. You know, after they passed the bill outlawing the slave trade in 1807 in England, the House of Commons, where William Wilberforce was sitting there, for 20 years, he proposed legislation ending the slave trade with various degrees of success, but mostly failure. They, it was just like a standing ovation for an extended standing ovation. And apparently that's like, they never, in the history of the House of Commons, that's very, very, very rare, apparently. And at the end, someone stood up and said, this is 1807, so Napoleon is all over Europe at the stage. And he said, you know, there's two people, I don't remember the details, but it was something like saying, you know, two people who've achieved huge momentous historical things but one of them napoleon when he goes to sleep tonight he's going to think about all the death and things and the destruction that he carried out and wilberforce is going to sleep soundly because he's going to think of all the freedom that he created i want to open the door and hopefully usher people enable people to walk through the door but really it's it's everyone's personal experience is going to be the experience of of undoing all this terrible stuff that's happening to people i mean 10 million people I think nine or 10 million people died last year from air pollution, just air pollution. Nothing about sea level change, sea level rise, or, you know, there's right. a million things that happen, and a lot of things that are happening, biodiversity and extinctions and 
deforestation and mercury and coral bleaching and all this stuff. And just one, by one measure, these like nine, 10 million people died in a year from air pollution. And it's going to increase. This is huge. I mean, this is not a small problem. Right. So we, so, have, the, so we have that huge problem. We're dealing with a parallel huge problem. And I know that as you, you, you had mentioned before, that as we step out of the meta and into the practical, that there are a couple of examples that have connected with you. Are we at a spot where stepping into those examples might help bring some of this home? Oh, from the very beginning of this conversation that we were talking before yeah. about the meta stuff. Yeah. And so- yeah. So we've kind of moved into that and we moved through this transitional middle ground. It feels, it, I guess I'm asking, are we at this spot now where tangibly it's a great step to say, let, let's talk about, let's talk about examples. Let's talk about how the world works around this. Well, there's a couple of things. There's one model that came to mind. See, now we're getting into the, all right, let me, let me wrap up what we were talking about. Is that I feel okay. like now I have a facility of speaking about something that before I was just utterly scared of speaking about. It's untested. Right, right now, I'm a white man talking to another white man. A certain straight white man talking to another straight white man. <laughs> yep. Middle class, maybe upper middle class, I'm not sure. And I'm not yet talking to someone who might push me and challenge me. And, so, and I've had conversations like that. I'm not sure where it'll go. I might get blown out of the water. But... I think I'm getting more comfortable to where I can talk about these things and it not be like this big thing, but just something I can talk about. In that context, some of the ideas that I've had seem kind of small in comparison. So now I feel like I'm taking a step into much less important stuff. But there's a model that I have for, I think, I look at how the left calls the right racist and the right says, no, the left is even more racist. I've, perhaps you've picked up on this trend. It, it, this is not something only I'm seeing, yes. right? Oh, no, it's, it's absolute. I mean, every, it's extremist pointing from everywhere. So it hit, like, where I'm, as a leadership teacher, an exercise that I often give is like, how can you empathize? How is it, why do people do something that doesn't make sense? How can you get into the mindset, look at the world from their perspective to where what they do makes sense? So I'm always trying to do that. So I get into the mindsets of, People on the left calling the right racist. I think I can get that, why they say that. And get into the minds of people on the right and say why, the, why from their perspective, the left looks racist. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to talk to you about two mental models. Okay. You've probably worked with mental models a lot. Oh, yes. If you don't mind my describing a bit of context for in case listeners are not used yeah, I to th- it. I think that would be important a lot of, because a lot of people have not. And it's, it's pretty, pretty good to give a, give a context and framework of what we're looking at. Yeah, it's after you get it, it's simple, but in my experience, but getting it is hard and it's, re- it's subtle until you get it. And then it's like, hits you like a ton of, ton of bricks. Right. But if you've never worked on it, it's crazy. But after you've worked on it, it's like, how could I understand people without doing this? How could I change myself without getting this? So when I teach it in class, I usually start with a dog example. If you grew up with a pet pit bull and you loved it as a kid and it was playful, you might think of pit bulls as cuddly and adorable. Right. I definitely know people who are like, like that. Yep. Now, what if I was once bitten by a pit bull? I might think they're dangerous, like a weapon, right? There's lots of news articles about that. Oh yeah, it's a very popular and divisive issue. If you put you and me in a room with a pit bull, you might see cuddly and adorable and calmly walk toward it to pet it. And it might, seeing you being friendly, might respond in a friendly manner back. Now, I might be scared and anxiously back away from it. And my anxiety might make the dog feel anxious and might make the dog growl at me. Same dog, you go toward it, I go away from it. 
it's friendly to you, it growls at me. People are like that too. Yeah. And not all mental models. So a mental model is like a lens through which you view the world that, that guides how you perceive it. And then how you perceive it guides how you respond to it. And, and guides how it responds to you in many cases. Yeah. So you, you, you change the world. Yeah. Yes. Now, in this case, I picked a model that happened to be self-reinforcing. I move right. away and the dog growls at me. You might believe, well, the animal is clearly cuddly and adorable. Josh, you are the one who made it the other way. The dog is still cuddly and adorable. So you might see this. I'm, we both keep reinforcing our beliefs. Right. It doesn't always happen that way, but it can. And in this case, it does. The world is much more complex than our one human brain can comprehend. So we have to simplify things all the time. It's not a flaw. It's just how our brains work. Right. We simplify. I'm going to give you, oh, and here's another model. So when the, when the pandemic hit, I'm sure people have heard me say this one before. When the pandemic hit and I was going to be locked down for indefinitely, I thought, well, what mental model can I adopt here? And I thought of Nelson Mandela. Nelson Mandela was locked down for 27 years, emerged to become president of a formerly apartheid nation. Right. For his 70th birthday, when he was still in prison, there was a birthday party. 600 million people participated in it around the world. That's what he could pull off from prison, you know, not by himself. I have yet to even have 1 million people at one of my birthday parties. We'll work on that. Yeah. <laughs> You're all invited. <laughs> so I hear people losing their shit after a month or two under lockdown. I'm like, I got a quarter century to go before I'm still even, you know, I still got time after that. Right, right. And I'm not even breaking hard rocks. I still have access to the internet and, you know, every piece of culture that's ever been digitized, I can have access to and I can talk to people on Zoom and so forth. I created a mental model where I'm doing just fine. The other mental model I have, or the other role model, mental model is uh, Viktor Frankl, who was also imprisoned by the Nazis. Right. And he wrote of bliss and love, creating and finding meaning. So that's what I'm finding in my lockdown. Now that doesn't change. It doesn't make, it, doesn't, it, it changes how I feel, but that changes how I act. And that changes what meaning and purpose I can find. Right. Yeah. And, I, and I've seen the same pattern, even, even in speaking to two different clients in the same day or two different friends in the same day they're in nearly identical situations, but their responses to it are different. And it's really because of the lens that they're approaching it through. I was talking to a, an ardent Trump supporter the other day on a, I was, I was a guest on a panel with four super, maybe it was five super ardent Trump supporters and me, okay. not particularly pro Trump, especially on his sustainability or lack thereof right. initiatives. One of them said she came from an Eastern European nation they were talking about the vote and they were saying that the vote was clearly Trump won and there was a lot of fraud. There's a lot of other things said, but one of the reasons that this one person said that there must've been fraud was that we must not allow this nation to become socialist like the country where she came from. Mm. Now this seems to me clearly, I don't care what, how awful it was and how much we're sliding into it. That is not evidence for fraud, right. but it motivated her very strongly to see it. So that's a case where, it seemed to me that the lens that she was looking at the world through was causing her, leading her to see things. We do it too. I do it. I don't know when I do it. Sometimes I do. Sometimes most of the time I don't. Sometimes you want an outcome and it leads you to see things to get to that outcome. And this is not like a, a rare thing. It happens all the time. Of course. And we, we all, I think, have our built-in biases and it's awareness breeds improvement, but a lot of people have not taken the spaces to increase their awareness there are some that I'm aware of, some that I'm sure that I'm not, but those biases, those lenses that we gain make a tremendous difference in the results of everything in our life. Yeah. When leaders say self-awareness is important, I think this is one of the main elements of self-awareness. Agree. 
you know what really sucks is when you get it and someone else doesn't, and they think there's only one way of seeing the world, and when you're flexible about it, they think you're you're rootless and groundless and and loopy, because they think people are self righteous, including me. They don't feel I have an opinion that's correct. They feel I see how the world is. And if you disagree with me, you don't disagree with me. You disagree <laughs> with reality. You're really right. messed up. Right, exactly. How do you not see that, right? Yeah. And, you know, meeting people, one of the things that I've trained myself to do is recognize that what they see and what they believe, that is their current reality. Even just recognizing that allows me to interact with them with questions rather than statements a little better and mm-hmm. get my ego a little more out of the way. But it, it is tremendous how much that how much that influences us. How did the, this idea of mental models, how does this play out from a perspective of race? Okay. Yeah. The, when the left and the right, when they, they don't set, you said, when you see this, you respond with questions, not statements. And I see a lot of you're racist. No, you're racist. Not, Hmm. Why do you see things that way? Huh? Why do you see things that way? Right. I was trying to look at how people looked at it. So here's one mental model. Imagine you're driving down the road. I'm sure this has happened. You're driving down the road. Maybe you hit that rumbles on the rumble stuff on the side and you're Oh yeah. Especially when I'm sleepy. (laughs) Yeah. You probably figure I've steered a bit off. The best thing for me to do right now is to steer the other way back onto the road and then go straight again. Right. If someone were with you and they said, look, you want to go straight, just keep going straight. I know you're off, but you don't want to go not straight. You want to go straight. So stay on the side of the road. They said, keep going straight. You would say, that doesn't make any sense. Because actually you might think if I really, if the wheels go off the road, I could, the car could flip. I mean, there right. could be lives at stake here. It could be dangerous to go straight. Right. So the most important thing is steer back. All right. That's one model. If you have, there's a problem where you've gone off track, the best thing you can do is to steer back on track and then keep going ahead. Here's another model. I'll go for the big serious one. It's okay. No, no, I'll start. I'll ampl- say you're playing piano in a performance with an audience. You hit the wrong key. So you hit it. Hit one note flat. Right. The best thing you can do on the next note is to play the right next note. And if someone said, Oh, you hit it flat this time, you should hit it sharp, hit the next one sharp and they'll even out. <laughs> Go to the opposite, they cancel. You would right. You would say, that makes it worse. Right. It's like it doesn't average out. The best thing I can do is do the best I can straightforward or from forward. So same same thing on the highway, right? Uh, no, the highway, times- you inadvertently steered to the right. Or in England, you steer to the left. Right. You, inadvert- you inadvertently steered off, and now you got to steer back the other way. You got to undo. Sure. You, gotta, you once well, steered too far right, so now you got to steer left. Yeah, I guess I was thinking of the common reaction, which is, oh, I drifted a little to the right. Let me jerk the wheel all the way to the left. I ended up in, on the other side of the road. The jerking versus over jerking. I mean, the jerking part is that's a secondary issue. The point is, you, you even if you don't want to do it too fast, you still want to move left. You have a bit. to course correct. Right. Yes. But let's, let's amp it up. It's not just hitting the wrong note. Imagine you're an anesthesiologist and you've inadvertently given the patient a bit too little anesthesia. Mm. The best thing I've you can do that. is start giving the right amount of anesthesia, not too much. Yes. You could kill the patient, right? A life is at stake. Yep. Everyone I've ever met, and I haven't met that many people, certainly not compared to the population of, of the United States, but everyone agrees that the United States has racism in its past. Mm-hmm. It's in the constitution. Right. It's in Jim Crow. It's in all sorts of policies that have been, and, and it's still here. I don't know anyone who says that racism is a thing of the past only. Almost everyone would say that it's better now than it was before. But I don't know anyone who says that there's 
zero racism in the United States. Right. There, I think there's a pretty strong debate over the degree and the level of presence, but there's no real debate over whether it actually exists or whether it's better than it was a hundred years ago. All I need is that people agree that it still exists. Yep. Which And that they don't want it. I have spoken, I guess, to people who are out at racists who say this one is superior, that one's superior or whatever. Very, I think that's a, let's grant that, the, I'll grant that they exist, but let's, if you grant that they're a small minority. That well, of course, that, yeah, there are all, <laughs> there will be exceptions to virtually every rule. So I'm, I'm with you. There so are we'll people table, on the ultra extremes, but we'll table 99% them for now. of people are, are in for this. So the remaining people all agree that there's racism, they want it to end, and how do we end it? Right. Now, some people say there was a problem in the past. We inadvertently went too far or we introduce something that, was, that we don't like, let us steer back away from that. Let's undo that. Let's actively undo that. Right. Say there's an industry, or let's say there's, someone's applying to school, and there's a school that historically has had many more whites represented than are in the population. Right. Let's say that for various reasons of historical systems that non-whites have had to work harder to get the same grades in high school and to get the same scores on admissions tests and things like that. Then two candidates who looked exactly the same, but one had to work harder to get that, you would say, maybe we should make it so that, that per- we recognize that that person had to work harder. It may be hard to measure that, but if that could be done, a lot of people would support that and say, we should have scholarships and admissions policies that address the color of one's skin because our society addresses the color of one's skin. Right. We went we made mistakes in the past and we should undo those mistakes. We should actively do things to fix them. And if we don't, if someone says, no, just keep it the way it is, you would say that's it. We could flip. It, right. if, if you just keep going the way things are and don't actively try to fix them, you will maintain a racist situation indefinitely. The rumble strips are there for a reason. Yeah. If someone who says, don't overcorrect, don't try to steer back. You might say you can be racist or anti-racist, but you can't be no racist. You must be racist. That's applying that model. What if your model is the anesthesia model? We made a mistake in the past. The best thing we can do now is to do what is, is if we addressed race in the past and that caused a problem, to address race the other way is still race. It's still doing things based on race. We should stop addressing race and treat people as people without addressing those things. And if someone said to that person, we should overcorrect, we should correct, they will hear you're going to give the patient too much medicine. It's still racism. It's just a different kind of racism. Now, I'm not saying, I'm sure you've heard the phrase, all models are wrong, but some are useful. Right. Yes. The measure of which model to adopt, I would say, is which one gets you the goal that you want. It may be that one model is more effective. It may be another model is more effective. I don't know a priori which one would work more effectively, or maybe neither would work more effectively. But I do know this. Well, and also, in principle, science could figure this out. You could do some, run some tests and figure it out. But the number of confounding variables and that we don't have any spare universes to run a control group on. We can't borrow your pocket universe where yeah, all your in, millions of uh, birthday participants are. So in principle, science could determine these things, but in practice, it can't. So all right. we can do is try something and see what happens. All we know is what did happen in the past. And we interpret things differently. So it seems to me looking at the number of votes for the different, let's say red and blue in the past several elections, it's pretty close to 50, 50 among the voters. Now I'm not saying that these two models are what people have. 
they could be similar. I think on the left, they pretty much th would say, we have to fix the problems of the past. Okay. And the way to do it is to go the other way. They're not thinking about ditches and roadsides and, and rumble strips, but they're thinking about correcting a past problem. And I think on the right, there's a lot of people who think, yeah, there was a problem and we should stop doing it. We should treat people as individuals. They're not thinking about anesthesia and piano performances, but some sort of how to fix the problem. Both of them look at the world. They see the same problems. They both want to fix the problems. They both think that they are fixing the problems and they both think that the others are exacerbating the problems. I think this, without, I don't want to be too coy and say, you know, either side is thinking of, of exactly these models, but I right. think they both are looking at the solutions and interpreting the problems based on what they think will solve the problem. I believe that something like this could explain how you could have a nation full of virtually no racists, but everybody believed in the nation's half racist. Is your argument that we could have a nation full of not very many racists, or is your, is your argument that based upon this, you believe we do have a nation full of very few racists? I think there's a pretty good chance that most people are not racist, that the labels are from people who don't recognize that their lenses are leading them to see other people's, what other people are proposing as solutions to them feel like exacerbating the problem. So they say, well, if they're not with me, they must be the opposite of me. I'm against racism, so they must be for racism. Is there a benefit in separating, and this, is, this may be a dangerous topic in and of its own, is there a benefit in separating acts or moments that could be individually racist or, or colored by racism or racist, racist thoughts or of the lens versus being a racist? If the question... Can, I'm going to interpret this as asking a broader question of sure. what good is this? Well, a little bit, but I, I, I think it's more, I, I, I think the, and I'm probably not asking it very well, but what, what I'm trying to distinguish is let's say, and I'll, and I'll try and make it a little more specific. Let's say I have an uncle John and uncle John raised as he may have been influenced by the culture as he may have been. He looks at people and he thinks, man, people are great. I like people regardless of color or whatever, but he makes comments that are judgmental or that are, that, that could be perceived as racist comments. Does that make him a racist? In other words, is he tagged with that as a person or are those moments or instances for which he should simply correct or be educated or whatever it may be? The example I, I like to think of here and tell me if this applies was that when I was growing up, people would use the word oriental to describe people that we now describe as Asian. Yep. Say there was someone who grew up using the word oriental and everybody around him or her did. And say this person goes on vacation to some place and it's outside the United States for a long, long time. And then comes back and starts saying, describing what we would describe as Asian as oriental. Today, people, if they didn't know the situation, they might say, this guy sounds racist or this woman sounds racist. Is it something like that situation? Like yeah, something like that, where it, that's certainly a perfectly viable piece of it, because I, I do see examples of that are very close to that that throughout society, and it feels that much like what you described earlier with the far, with the left and the right and pointing at each other, that there's a broad brush painting over a lot of people. I do see that, and I, I have follow ups from this, but I, I I wanted to establish a a base level here of of the difference between an instance like what you're describing versus maybe a lifestyle or a full or a belief. Well, when you talk about this broad brush, 
I think of the term racism is a label. It's not an absolute, I don't know if there's some absolute measure of these things. I think it's, you look to the person who's using the label. Do they have grounds to call them racist? Do they have grounds? Like, what's the point? Does it make the world a better place to apply that brush? Or could you get to a place where people are doing what you said that you do when you recognize that different mental models are at play is to ask questions instead of making statements? So instead of saying, okay, so someone looks at someone and says, you have a different, they see a different strategy. And instead of saying, well, that sounds racist to ask, why do you have a different strategy? Or let's just say there's two sides. And I don't see the two sides saying, are you trying to achieve anti-racism or you know, equality and justice and fairness? I think they take for granted, I am, their strategy is different. Therefore, they must be going for the opposite. End of story. No more right. questions. That it's binary. Not only binary, but settled. Right. Like what it's I not see, even up for debate. Yeah, this is psychology. I think this is called the fundamental attribution error. You see what they mm. do and you attribute to them the intent you figure. That may not be their intent. So if people have different models, which may or may not be like the ditch model and the, and the uh, anesthesia model, but they have a model where it leads to a certain solution. And if someone has a different solution, you think that they're, they have a different goal. But I right. think that if people ask the question, I see your, the action you're proposing, but they don't ask what's your goal. Right. I want to move to questions, not just questions. Where I think this leads is, well, very, yeah, actually asking questions is a pretty good way to put it, but it's to assume that others are, no, how do I put it? I mean, it's really, yeah. What I'm, what you, I'm you put it better I than I is- you, you put it better than to, I thought about it, which is to ahead. ask questions, to figure out where, where, what's going on over there instead of assuming their intent and also recognizing that people will look at the world differently. You're not going to make differences in, in mental models go away, nor could you. Right. And if we live in a world where there are going to be differences, no matter what, then how do you resolve it's not even how do you resolve the difference. Some, some you can resolve and come right. together and agree on looking at the world the same way, but many you can't. In that regard, how do you live together in a society where people have different views of the world, different values? And where it comes to me is democracy, is how people who live differently can still live together. Sometimes the vote goes your way. Sometimes the vote goes my way, but it's not that the other person's bad or wrong. The goal is to influence people, not bludgeon them and understand people, not label them to look at the mental model. This is where we run into the, this is where we run into that issue that you were talking about earlier. It's wonderful to say I'm inclusive and I, and I care about everybody. And I think that, I think the freedom of speech is, and this is, I'm using this again as a, as a, as an objective, not as me saying this, but saying I'm, I'm, I'm inclusive and I, and I want everybody to be able to say everything. And I believe that, the, that it's important for freedom, unless you disagree with me, mm-hmm. in which case I will vilify you completely and you don't get that same ability. And it seems to me that both sides might, both sides of most issues that are divisive may get there. That seems to be a fundamental issue in most divides and certainly in defining racism. And I, I think that that's really where a lot of my questions are going. I, it, there is a piece of this that for me, I, I would say I may 
disagree a little bit with your perspective, which is only the piece in what percentage of people or how much of an, how, how many people I might say, Hey, in this world, it seems to me through my experience, through what I've encountered seem to be racist in the country that I, that it does not feel, or in my experience seem to be a small number. The principles that we're talking about, the asking of questions, maybe most importantly, I'm a hundred percent on board with it. My empirical examples and experience would show that it's a much higher than a very small number. Even if it's a big number, and I got to say, when I had Matthew Stevenson on my podcast, who befriended Derek Black or Derek Brown, I always forget which, godson to David Duke, he was raised to be a white supremacist. Right. And, there, and Matthew, my guest, was and is an Orthodox Jew. And they became friends, ultimately leading to Derek leaving white supremacy and, in fact, doing the opposite of it, which would be to promote equality. I, I don't know exactly how you label what he does now, but if you watch right. the TV shows, he's like saying, here's how to get out of those things. I go to Stormfront. The pay- so Derek... As a young, as a teenager, I think created the page Stormfront. So I'm curious. I go check it out. Yeah, full on racists. I mean, these are people who are like, <laughs> no question. These people aren't civilized and they never can be, and all this stuff. And like, we we should promote our race and pride and all this stuff. And yeah, they're there. I don't deny that they're there. I don't get it. I think even among them, I think I would guess that a lot of them, it's more ignorance than anything else in a way that a lot of people who are maybe homophobic and then they have a son or daughter come out and then suddenly it changes. And it's not a matter of knowing more information, but maybe finding that you love someone who you- Sure, your your whole lens shifts. I I agree with that. At the same time, I look at, in, in, so in my experience of growing up, I grew up as I look back now, as I realize it with a different lens in a very racist culture. I grew up in, yes, there was a lot of ignorance, but I grew up around people that today to this point, having asked the questions, having had conversations with them, I would say that 30, 40 plus percent of them would fall into the category of racist. Now, I I do think it's worth noting that if you look at it as a spectrum of and I, and I almost hate to do this, but you think of it as like a, a zero to 10 and the 10 are maybe the, the people that you're talking about as the visible example of absolutely like there's, there's really no argument here and zero and one are, you know, man, maybe there's a comment or, or two, or like you said, the, the Oriental example from earlier, there's a lot of people in my observation in that five, six, seven range that may be there for, from ignorance, may be there from whatever, but they've been, they've been raised to a spot where currently in their world, in their space right now, their actions, their behaviors, their language is racist. I have not devoted myself to try to empathize with that group. So far, I got a little attachment on my browser that says, if I'm looking at a new source, it'll say L, C, or R, or L, C, or L, R. So mm-hmm. it says if it's Which center, it left, or right. Yeah. It says that the New York Times, I think, is center left, and it says, I think Fox News is center right. So if we just look at New York Times, if, if, if that is accurate, I don't know if it is, but right. if, that, if that browser add-on is accurate, if you look at the number of readers of the New York Times, the number of readers of, of Fox News, I think what I'm talking about is this group of people. Now, there are going to be others who are reading Stormfront. I was just like looking, preparing for a podcast conversation, not trying to empathize with them and trying to learn where they're coming right. from it. I don't really have access to them. I do have access to people who are very strongly leftist, people who are very strongly rightist. I can talk to them and understand them. So find me a couple full-on racists and put me in touch with them and I'll see if I can learn from them too. But this is actually it. It's like, 
it's looking at the other, it's, it's saying, instead of looking at the others and at people that you disagree with and saying, how can I beat them or what's wrong with them? But look at people you disagree with and say, what can I learn from them? And that seems to be, so I, I think that's, that question is worth digging into. And I tend to agree with you, but I, I, let's play the other side for a moment. If I'm the person that's being attacked by somebody or that is being, whether verbally, physically, whatever it may be, or that they are, that they have, they express hatred toward me. How do I learn to understand them? And why should I? And I, I, t- I, I want to, again, framework here. I actually agree with you, but I think it's worth exploring the question. Well, if you're being attacked physically, uh, you know more about this because you're taking more self-defense classes than I have. <laughs> I do. There, I, I punt. I don't know what to answer there. Yeah, I think get out of the situation. Get home safe. Let's start there. But Well, I mean, what I'm doing now, th- this comes back to why I'm talking about race on the show, is that I felt attacked for views that didn't seem, you know, bring Wilberforce to sustainability seems to me a way of making the world a better place. Right. People say, Josh, you have no place to talk about these things. You don't know what you're talking about. You know, you don't know the pain and suffering that others have. And so I felt silenced. Right. My response is, well, given these models is to try to understand where they're coming from, to try to increase my ability to express myself effectively, especially to people who are saying that to me. What I'm hearing is two things there and correct me if I'm missing it, but I hear that you're looking A, to create a space for dialogue and questioning and B, to decrease the hypersensitivity of an issue, which will more easily allow that space. And that as a follow-up, if you, if you do that, that then you, now that you've created the space for dialogue, you create the space for change and it seems to me, as we'll, as we'll jump into this, that that process, if, that, if I'm seeing that correctly, is a pretty strong parallel to what you're doing with the environment as well. Well, you're talking at a much higher level than I'd be able to see. I'm still in the trees on this. The way it seems to me, tell me if this is the same thing that you're saying, but at a lower level, it's easy for me to say, no, you're wrong about me. Here's what's right. Right. That doesn't seem to work very well. <laughs> Not so much. That's just two people yelling at each other. Yeah. And I can't blame someone else for doing something that I'm doing the same thing. Oh, you did it first. Yeah. I guess to create space for dialogue, to create, to develop in myself dialogue, uh, not dialogue, uh, language, right? vocabulary to not to just respond, no, you, and figure out what are the issues that I might be missing is this doing in this particular case, what you're describing at the systems level, if that's the right way to put it? Yeah, I, I think so. And I, it, it's interesting to see how that works with people. And I, I, in fact, just earlier this afternoon, I had what may at first not seem to be a direct parallel to this, but I, I think works really well. I was working with an employee of one of, the, of one of my clients. They're having a difficulty with one of their clients. The employee was just raw and frustrated because she felt like she'd been attacked and the client was being mean and all of this. And we asked a few questions about, well, what do you think that that person is trying to get out of this? How do you think they hear the communication that you're giving? How do you just really probing into that? And by the time we were done, her response was, wow, I didn't see it that way. I wasn't thinking of, I was locked in. 
I had had a, I like to call it a short circuit, like the circuits had just shorted out and was seeing things in one particular way without having the space to breathe and the mindset to question. And once she did, everything about her communication instantly changed. And within an hour, that relationship was, was better. And it doesn't that's, always happen that fast, but I feel like that's a similar, that's a parallel in many ways. That's what I'm trying to get to here. As much as I'm talking about the left and the right, I have to acknowledge, and this is very painful for me to see in myself, but I'm doing it. So someone says, Josh, you don't get it. I, I want to say back, I do get it. You don't get it. Right. And I feel like it's not that you have a problem with my view. You have a problem with reality. I'm feeling that myself and I'm blind right. to it when I'm doing it. We short it. circuit, right? We, we, even if we have pretty well-trained paths, when we hear whatever that trigger is, whatever that thing is, it just cuts right through it and we, and we revert back. There's a quote that I like from Archaeolocus. We don't rise to the level of our hopes. We fall to the level of our training. I like to tweak that a little bit. We fall to the level of our highest secured training. Until we've trained ourselves to see or feel or hear that differently, we default back to, man, to that defensiveness, to, that, to whatever that might be. No, you. Right, exactly. We default back to know you. And I, I, do this, I do the same damn thing and it, and it frustrates me. I don't do it in all areas. You don't do it in all areas, but we all have some areas where we do it. And it's really, really hard when I feel like you don't have a problem with me, you have a problem with the reality to then say, what other ways of looking at this are there? And to respond with questions and statements, as you said, it's really deeply uncomfortable. It is. And to, I think one of the hardest things in, in the communication we do on our learning platform, one of, the, one of the training pieces that we talk about is understanding that other people's, what people see, what their experience is, that is their reality. That is their truth. If they're working from their reality and truth, and I'm working from my reality and truth, the only way to bridge that is to build a connection, not to tear it down. Well, and prior to that, what holds us from it, I think, is this deeply uncomfortable feeling of empathizing with someone you think is right. messing up the world. And the, the short version of putting that is ego is the greatest impediment to our own success. And because in the end, all of that, us taking our own truth, us, us saying what I believe is the way things are, that's all ego. Yeah, I don't know what ego means. To me, it's anxiety insecurity. I, to me, it's like specific emotions that I feel. Fair enough. When I hear ego, I just think of like, okay, now I got to know all this whole Freud thing, like the whole <laughs> mental model that exists in, right? Because there's a super ego and there's an id and all this yeah, stuff. Not trying, to, not trying to dive too deep there. I'm not a psychologist, won't play one on the, on the uh, podcast. But, but I, I think of it more, maybe even more simply put is that we get in our own way. We're the greatest impediment to our own success because we can't get out of our own way. Yeah, I like to be as specific as I can because that, that way I can solve it. I guess like when I feel those emotions of, of defensiveness and also desire to retaliate, that should be my that should be your cue, right? My cue to when ask we feel questions. that we're feeling some form of entitlement. We're feeling some form of, of self-righteousness. Of self-righteousness of I'm owed this reaction or this all of those things that are rising up, none of which are productive. The root out of it is to learn from the other. And it really sucks to learn to, really to try to learn from someone that you think is an idiot. Or that you have, whether legitimate or not, enmity towards. If you've got this person that you just don't get along with, going to them 
and learning from them or going to them and really just asking, even not going to them, but even just asking yourself, like, what, what's important to them? What matters to them? What do they see? What framework are they coming from? I know when I had that conversation with the young lady earlier today, man, that was hard for her. It probably took me 10 minutes just to get to get through that one part of our conversation to get her to release and relax and get to the spot where she could say, oh, well, I guess there is something that she's seeing. There is something that this client is seeing that's different. And we have such a hard time letting go of that. We, I include me in that totally. And you're right. That that's hard. Yeah. It's one of the hardest things to do. You know, it's not hard physically. Right. Uh, it's, it's so easy to get abstractly. And if you look at most of the, you know, the big names from around, you know, some period in history of like Jesus and Lao Tzu and Buddha and Confucius and people from that time, they had ways to address these things, mercy and compassion and self-awareness and things like that. It's very easy to say, turn the other cheek. It was not exactly the same thing, but it's so easy to say and easy to see for others to do. <laughs> It's yeah, you're laughing because like you, you uh, yep, yep, yeah, yeah. In the moment, it's so hard. And everyone who's listening to this being like, well, Josh, of course, good. I feel that way too all the time when I hear other people having those problems. That's why I think that the results of my these conversations you and I are sharing, yeah, as well as the many ones that were offline, and even having this one with you or these three with you so far are they came after many conversations before, including with you, yes. but also including with others. And I've recorded a whole bunch of them that. I wasn't ready to put up yet. Maybe I'll put up soon because they weren't designed to for podcast episodes. They were designed for me to review and understand and maybe to share with the world. I think the goal was to reach a calmness to speak about something and a humility and a curiosity that was greater than the self-righteousness and a sense of security grounded in a pattern Grounded in a belief of my mental model being reality. Right. And that's what it means to believe something, it means to believe it to be true. Well, sure. I, I, I believe in strong opinions loosely held, right? I, I, have, I have opinions for the things that I believe for sure. But if I find something, and this is, this is what inherently stokes my curiosity, I believe be more curious is maybe the greatest skill that we can use. But if I find something that shows me that I was wrong, that shows me that I was seeing it differently or I need to adjust. I set, and I'll, I'll use the term that I used earlier again, but I, I set my, my ego to the side and we'll say, okay, great. Now that I've been shown that, now that I understand that I am willing to change that willingness to have strong beliefs, but also have, but the eagerness to have them challenged, the eagerness to have the dialogue is for me, at least it has proven to be a healthier mindset than the one that I've spent, that I spent 45 of my 46 years living. For me, what's motivating to the extent that I have it, the ability to listen to others and learn from them, even on things that I think that they're wrong about, that humility comes from a mission, which is in my case, trying to reverse course on heading over this environmental cliff. Also something driving me is as a project-based educator, seeing students in my class who are sitting next to random people that they've never met before. If we want to talk about race, then there's, going to be, there's a huge diversity within the NYU student body. Once they start working on a project together, all that stuff, none of that matters. They're working on a right. project. They're solving a problem. They're working together. They're asking, they're finding out what the other person can do that they can't and things like that. If there's anything tying us all together, we breathe the same air, we drink the same water, we eat the same food and no one wants mercury in their fish. I don't 
maybe I'm tilting at windmills, maybe I'm dreaming, but I believe that this is something that can tie us together and get us all working together in a way to celebrate whatever differences there are, either they're superficial and not worth caring about, hair color, eye color. I don't think anyone's like, ah, you blue-eyed people. (laughs) Then there are differences of, do you ever see pictures of, of swimmers and distance runners who are the same height? Yes. Their hips are different places because right. the long distance runners have these super long legs right? and their torsos are really small and swimmers have really long torsos. So the same height, but clearly complementary something there because one of them has significantly right. longer legs and the other has a significantly longer torso. If we needed two things, one swum somewhere and if we needed to send out two messages, one by swimming and one by running, you're not going to send the swimmer running and the runner swimming. Right. So you want to build on strengths. These are going to be strengths that are accidents of birth. No one asked for it. We're born that way. And there are certain accidents of birth that we'll presumably build on. I have this vision of a common problem, however tragic, because people are dying. 10 million people, 9 million, 10 people died from air pollution. And, and you know, that's the beginning. Right. So we can't undo the past. We can't change that the ship has already hit the iceberg or, you know, it's like about to, we can't change this, the, what's led up to now and this exact moment which is now in the past. And this moment is now in the past, but we can avert the worst disaster. We can work together. A friend of mine, I sent him an article I I published in a journal about the pandemic. And he said, you know, Josh, I use the words, the finest hour. And he said, people are dying. This is not our finest hour. So the finest hour, I came across the phrase in the movie Apollo 13, when there was an explosion out in space and we weren't sure if we can get the people back or NASA wasn't sure if they could get the people back. And one guy says, oh, this could be the worst disaster NASA has faced. And the guy overhears him and says, with all due respect, sir, I believe this will be our finest hour. So finest hour never describes when you wake up in the morning and it's a beautiful sunrise and the birds are chirping and you feel so great and you can't right. wait to have breakfast. And that's not our finest hour. Our finest hour is always like it's you know the Battle of Britain. It's when you pull victory at whatever loss, but you, it could have been worse and you, you pull it out and it, it comes out because of everyone came in together. And whatever the outside situation was, we as humans connected in the most valuable, meaningful ways of us. It was just to connect to others for everything in them with everything you've got. You reach your full potential as a person, as a member of a team, for the full team as a team, and possibly in this case as as humanity. That I believe we are capable of reaching our finest hour, even though it will come at a time when what's driving it is that there will be more plastic in the ocean than fish soon if we don't do something about it. As and part so, of this- so me, my self-righteousness is like, that's the, like the last impediment that, in that, from that view, for me to be like, no, you is a disaster. But right. if I hold back and don't voice what I think could be useful, I think what I do bring is an understanding of nature and science that's beyond most people's, I believe an understanding and experience in entrepreneurship of getting things started, taking initiative that I think is beyond many to start a company from scratch and build it up several times and leadership to operate these things and to coach and teach, to bring out the best in others. I think that combination is pretty rare, not unique and not the only thing we need, but I think I can bring in a lot of value to the situation to help people find meaning and purpose in what they now see as a burden and a chore. And I, I, th- 
I, all I the stuff about race is like to stop me from getting in my own way. Yeah, I, I think that you can. And I, I love that you are exploring it in that way. I think there's another part that comes from it, the calm that you are beginning to find through your discussion of race is both reflective of and, and enhancing of, at least in my observation, one of the parts of your approach to the environment that makes you different and able to be a broader voice and a a more clarion voice, which is that you are asking questions and seeking to inspire. Whereas in my experience, and I, I think in most people's, when we have encountered those that we might label, quote, environmentalists, it's just been, you're wrong. It's been, you know, that's all it's been is a shouting match. And so we feel this, I don't want to use the term incorrectly. So I was thinking PTSD, but it's not, we just feel this reaction to that's all that it's been. And you're able to enter that dialogue more in the middle with a questioning tone. Then once it opens the dialogue, the, the wealth of your experience and knowledge and connection and leadership can now come in and, and be brought to bear, which is then persuasive through inspiration rather than persuasive through intimidation. And I, I think so many people in the environmental space are living through intimidation and fear rather than questioning and inspiration. I appreciate your direction for that. And as we've talked through this, I see how the conversation and the parallels of about racism have enhanced that and have unlocked you and your space to do more, but also have made some important discussion or opened up some important discussions about race in the country as well. And in the end, there's more than one big issue that we're all dealing with in the world. And it's okay to deal with more than one, even if we understand that they are very, very significant. I'm very honored and flattered at what you said. I'm also wary that what I say to you now, to a friend who's supportive and non-judgmental is different than what happens when I get triggered (laughs) I can see myself having this conversation and I could easily see 10 minutes from now if someone said the right thing or the wrong thing or whatever, you know, the, the, the thing that would get me going, then I'd be like, it would go, all go out the window. Right. But I guess that's mastery of any performance-based active, social, emotional, expressive thing. Yeah, I think it is. I mean, is we're, one. we're not going to go from, I wasn't there to, yeah, hundred percent of the time I'm going to respond exactly how I'd like to. If we could, that'd be great. And someone's got that magic pill I'm in, but I don't have it. Yeah. I wonder where this would go. I mean, th- these, these conversations with you have gotten me to uh, like a level of stepping out of like, what am I talking about to why am I talking about it? I think. And then we'll see where that goes. It's not that I want to make race a non-issue. I want it to be as much of an issue as whatever sets of backgrounds and skills that people have because everyone's different and that teamwork, you know, you got to have everyone pulling and everyone contributing, but at least I can't pull back from not talking about it, pull back from talking about it. So not talk about it when it comes up. I think in addition to what I said a moment ago, one of the things that I am most encouraged by is that you went in my observation from really fearful of putting this thing out for some understandable reasons that we dug into and concerned about it to then willing to have the conversation, to then recognizing that the initial thing that you were concerned about wasn't even really the reason that you were probably internally doing it, to now translating it into why it matters for the environment. That's a pretty significant arc for those who have listened to all three of these and followed that arc. I suspect it will challenge them to consider a similar arc in their own life. Yeah, both of them. 
right. right. The, it just, I was just coming into the long conversations, but I hope people are listening to them. I'd love to hear back from them. Yeah, it's partly I want to comment. I'm also, I remember before we recorded, you said that we're, we're like hitting up to where you have to go to your next thing. Yeah, I've got a couple extra minutes because I got a delay, but I'm, I'm right up there. <laughs> well, we also have to um, schedule future stuff. So I, I propose wrapping up here, even though, because everything I'm thinking about saying is like, could be a whole other conversation. Yeah, I think you're right. <laughs> That's good. And, and it's been a great conversation. All right, let's wrap up there. Not just as arbitrary it may seem at that point, but external circumstances. Yes.